0: Good morning. morning. How are you today? Well, I want to start today with a quiz. So I don't know if it's a pop quiz, uh, unless you got the email about it. Did you? No, it's a pop quiz. We're going to do a quiz Um, because one of the tasks that companies these days are 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 constantly um, undertaking is this challenge to come up with with a symbol that we in our culture call a logo that creates brand recognition and. A good logo for any given company is a symbol that not only helps people associate with a product, but also connects them to that product on an emotional level. It also has heart appeal. Um, It is not only a connection to the product, but what that product stands for, what that product is actually all about. And so what I want to do this morning is just to give you a few practical illustrations of this. I have a little quiz. I'm going to put some logos up on the screen, just a few of them, and then you um, can decide... If you know the company or the product that's associated with, and if you do, just feel free to call that out. Um, again, I made these real easy. It doesn't have to be in the form of a question. Okay, wow, you jumped the gun on that one. But what's this one? This is Nike. If you didn't get that one, then you're not from around here. Uh, it's pretty easy once you feel good about yourself right off the bat. This is what's called the Nike swoosh. Um, Some of you probably know this, but the word Nike actually originates from a word that goes all the way back to Jesus' day. Um, It's a Greek word, Nike, that means victory or to win. And so this is why Nike chose the name they chose, because they want us to think about victory when we see this this swoosh. They want us to associate this swoosh with winners. This is why Nike spends lots and lots of money—probably more money than than we actually care to know—on getting people who are successful to wear this logo. People like Serena Williams and Kobe Bryant and LeBron James and Royal Mac, Roy McElroy and Drew Brees, Drew Brees, excuse me, and Allison Felix are all wearing Nike, not because they want to, but because they get paid to. Um, These are people who are winners athletically. And the idea is that when people see this logo, Nike wants them to think, I want to buy one of those. I I want to wear those shoes or those shorts or that shirt or that hat. Why? Because if I wear one, if that swoosh is found on my apparel, then maybe I'll be a winner too. Then maybe I'll, you know, hit the ball a little harder or run faster or jump higher or, or be a winner. And so I'll pay a little extra in order to wear Nike so that I can feel this way. Now, you guys kind of chuckle. I know I can just see you out there thinking, well, that's kind of silly. And yet how many in here have Nike stuff that you feel good about wearing? Um, lots of us. It's because Nike is a very compelling logo. It pulls us in. And we do feel just a little bit better when we're wearing it, especially if you live in Beaverton. All right, here's the second one. What company does this logo make you think of? McDonald's, a little more disdain in the room than the Nike logo. Um, But this logo is the home of, you deserve a break today, or I'm loving it, or the ever-famous Happy Meal. You see, friends, for decades, McDonald's has been telling this to the kids of our world. All it takes for you to be happy is for your parents to swing past that drive-thru. And so when you see those golden arches, kids, you should beg, plead, request, and even pout in order to get them to stop in and spend their money on your happiness. That's the message of McDonald's. How's McDonald's doing at branding that message through the golden arches? Anyone here ever have kids begging them to go to McDonald's? Or is it just me? My son has actually decided he hates McDonald's. He's caught the like Portland bug and he thinks it's just awful. He'll eat Taco Bell like five days a week, but he but he lo- but he he disdains McDonald's. All right, one more one more logo. This one is Mercedes-Benz. Actually, he cuts a little closer to home for some of you since I've been in our parking lot, but. Uh, Mercedes-Benz has a logo, and it means something. Uh, Actually, Mercedes ran an ad a while back that said this. Some of you will remember it. You can't buy happiness, but you can now lease it. You remember that? You can't buy happiness, but you can now lease it. Uh, Mercedes' official slogan is this. The best or nothing. The best or nothing, someone came up to me in the lobby today and said, oh, you should have shown the BMW slogan and told everyone what that means. And I said, oh, what does that mean? And, and then he said, couldn't afford a Mercedes. <laughs> oh, wow, that's really elitist, you see. Um, this is a logo of status, isn't it? And the message is real clear. If you drive one of these, you'll be somebody, you'll matter, you'll be among the elite. And we kind of chuckle to think about that, right? Like... Who would think better of themselves from just driving a car? But a few years back I had a friend whose uh, mother's, or whose wife's mother passed away and left them her Lexus. And this buddy of mine didn't have a whole lot of money, didn't have a whole lot of resources. They actually had one family car that they shared, and it was this old sort of beater van. And uh, then they inherit this Lexus, and my, my friend came to me one day, and he said, I hate to admit this to anyone, but I have to tell you, when I drive that Lexus around town, I do feel more important. It's actually true. Like There's something about marketing and branding that sinks into our souls. See, friends, we live in a world of logos. Some of the smartest people in our world stay up late at night trying to design these things and brand these things. And the question is, why? Why so much time and energy on this? It's for this reason. So when you see that logo, you'll think, I'd like to be associated with what it is that logo stands for. I'd like to be a part of whoever is associated with that deal. I'd like for what is reflected in that logo to be expressed in my life whether it's excellence or ease or comfort or happiness or or being a winner and that brings us to a very important question because for 2,000 years now the very simplest expression of the Christian faith is actually that symbol that logo right there you ever think about it that way If you are a follower of Jesus, this is the symbol of that on which you have built your entire life. And of course, the question that screams to be asked is why? Why of all things a cross? Because if you think about it, if you were trying to create a movement, if this was your goal, um, that would attract men and women from all around the world, why in the world would you choose something like this? Why in the world would you choose a cross? You see, I have this concern that the cross has become so common that we've forgotten about the shock of it. We've we've forgotten what it is that the cross really stands for. You see, you've you've all probably heard before, because it's been said a lot, that the modern equivalent of the cross would be the electric chair. It'd be like saying, hey, the symbol for our church, the logo for our church, wait for it, the electric chair. Now, I actually don't think that's right. I think that's a bad comparison, and here's why. The electric chair is designed to be a quick, relatively private, pain minimal death. The cross, on the other hand, was used by the Roman Empire to be a long, public, humiliating, torturous death. You see, the electric chair and the cross don't even compare, not even close. See, this is not the sign of a winner. This is not the Nike swoosh. This is not a logo of comfort or ease. It's not the golden arches. This is not a symbol of status. It's not Mercedes-Benz. This is a symbol of death. The logo that we rally around as a community of people who follow Jesus is a symbol of the most horrendous, torturous, public, humiliating death perhaps of all time. And so this morning I want to talk about what it means to be a people of the cross. What is it that Jesus invites his followers to rally around and be associated associated with? What does it mean for us to say, I'd like for what is reflected in that logo to be expressed in my life? What does that mean and what does it look like? We're in a series right now called Emmaus and what we're doing over these number of weeks as we're walking through this story in Luke 24 and we're using it as a model, as kind of a, a launching pad, a road map for what spiritual transformation looks like and how we can experience it together. And today we're honing in on one little phrase, one statement in the story. It's a statement Jesus makes to these two very confused disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. They're walking along, they're they're distraught. They're torn up, they're sad, they're confused, and they're lamenting the fact that their leader, their rabbi, the one they hoped would be the Messiah, has been crucified. He's been hung on a cross. And now, after listening to them talk for a while, Jesus is going to offer them a completely new set of lenses through which to see their reality. He's going to take all their worry and anxiousness, and their, their sadness and sorrow. He's going to take their perspective that, that death was not the plan, that death was not in the cards, that death is the end. And he's going to say, it's actually the very tool of God. Listen to what Jesus says to them on the road. He listens to them lament, and then he says, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, was this a tragic weekend or a triumphant weekend? Jesus says, you think it's tragic, but it's actually triumphant. You think death is something to be avoided, but it's actually something God uses to bring about life, to bring about hope, to create transformation in the world. Listen to how Ruth Haley Barton describes this in her book, Life Together in Christ. She writes, what Jesus did here in so few words was to draw attention to the heart of the Christian story. To those who had experienced the weekend's traumatizing events, he was pointing out that they were not merely witnesses to a terrible injustice, they were actually actually witnessing the great saving act of God accomplished in and through Jesus' suffering and the sacrifice of his life. And friends, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the cross is essential, not only because it reminds us of what Jesus did for us, but because it shows us what Jesus did as an example for us. See, most of the time, when we look at the cross, we think, that's what Jesus did for me. That's the death he he died for me. And that is true. And yet the other side of the cross is this. It's an example set by Jesus for how you and I, as followers of Christ, should live our lives. The cross is not what Jesus did for us only. It's what Jesus did as an example for us. Listen to Jesus' words. This is from Mark chapter 8. Jesus says, It says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, whoever wants to be a follower of Christ, whoever wants to call themselves a Christian must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, according to Jesus, following him requires self-denial, self-death, a death to one's very self. Did you know that Jesus makes this statement in all three of the synoptic gospels? It's not just a one-time moment for him. He says it over and over and over again in a variety of different ways. And he makes this statement about carrying our crosses in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. The cross is something Jesus says, I've done for you, but it's also an example for you and how to live your life. One author I read this week said it this way, Listen to this. This is, this, is, this is genius stuff. There are two crosses in the Gospels. There are actually two. We always think about the one, but there are actually two. There is the cross upon which Jesus died. Then there is the cross Jesus commanded us to pick up. The two crosses do not exist in tension with each other. Picking up our cross has nothing to do with trying to earn forgiveness from God. Rather, it refers to the way of life by which we appropriate resurrection newness into our lives. You see, we pick up our cross and carry our cross in order to be transformed. At the heart of the Christian faith is the story of Jesus, His death and resurrection, and the same pattern, death and rebirth, is also the foundational pattern for how you and I can experience real, forever, authentic, life transformation. Listen to how Jesus says it in the Gospel of John. He says, very truly I tell you, which is code words for Jesus to say, listen up, this is central, this is essential, this is not extra credit. This is a crucial part of what it means. He says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. A wonderful Scottish preacher named Ian Pitt Watson was preaching on this passage and he said, there have actually been two and only two great revolutions in the entire history of the world. Two moments, two revolutions that changed the course of human history forever. The first revolution, he says, is when somebody noticed this very strange thing, this amazing reality, that when we bury something in the ground, something happens. You see, normally we bury something to get rid of it. Up until this moment, people buried things to dispose of them. But if you do that same thing with a seed, something happens. And that seed becomes something it was not. It becomes a plant or a tree and it produces a harvest. It produces fruit. This was revolutionary. Imagine being that first person to bury a seed, to take something that's that's edible, that, that could nourish your body, that could produce nourishment for you in a moment, to bury it and then have it come up out of the ground and reproduce tenfold. Ian says... This was revolutionary because it meant human beings no longer had to be nomads wandering from place to place in search of food. It meant there could be villages and towns and crafts and art and architecture and tools and civilization. It means there can now be a place called home. This is called the agricultural revolution. And it changed the entire history of civilization. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a solitary grain of wheat. But if it dies, it will be a rich harvest. And that leads to the second revolution. It's not just an agricultural revolution. Jesus says, this is also the way life works. This is the way you work. This is the way your soul works. The same that's true for seeds is true for your soul. It's actually death that God can use to lead to life. And so this morning, I want to talk about dying to self. Dying to self. And I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about what it's not, what it is, and how we do it. What it's not, how it, what it is, and how we do it. First of all, dying to self and what it's not. I have to include this point because this is so often misunderstood in the church and it's been so badly abused and taught Over the centuries, that I feel like I need to say a couple things about what dying to self isn't. Self denial is not the seeking of suffering. Self denial does not mean that being miserable is a good thing to God. It does not mean that you are supposed to ignore your feelings or that you should try to avoid pleasure. It does not mean that if you like or enjoy something, it is wrong or that you should feel guilty or that if something is miserable and hard, God must think it's good. That's not denial of self. See, on the one hand, we get fooled into avoiding suffering. We get tricked into thinking that if we're suffering, if something is hard or painful or difficult, then, then we must have done something wrong and God must not be in it. That's, that's the wrong approach to suffering because it puts suffering at the very center of our focus. But the other the other error is equally as, as destructive, and that's to... Embrace suffering, to seek out suffering, and again, put it in the center of our lives as something we are pursuing. Suffering, friends, is not a bad thing, but it is not the main thing. It is a byproduct of following Jesus some of the time. And I'd argue that the scriptures say that if you follow Jesus long enough, you will find suffering, or suffering will find you. Suffering will be a part of your story. If you live in this world, suffering will be a part of your story, but certainly if you walk the path of following Christ. But it's not to be feared. It's not to be avoided. It's not a badge of shame or a sign that God's abandoned you. In fact, in Romans, Paul says, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. In other words, the scriptures say, God will use suffering in your life to do amazing and wonderful things. He can if you'll let him. But we don't seek suffering either. We don't go after suffering and go, look at me, I'm suffering, I must be following God. You see, sometimes you're just suffering because you're following you. Sometimes you're just suffering because you've sought out suffering on your own and it has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. So do not confuse the two. The order here is important. If you follow Jesus, you eventually will find suffering. But if you suffer, that does not necessarily mean that you are following Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. This is from Philippians 4. He says, I have learned to be content... Whatever the circumstances, whether there's suffering or there's joy or there's blessing or there's, you know, difficulty, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty, all following God. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You see, what Paul understands and what he's telling us here is this. We don't avoid suffering or seek suffering. We pursue the one through whom and in whom we can make it through any and everything, all circumstances. We focus on and pursue Jesus and then embrace... With him, whatever comes our way, he doesn't say things are good. I must be doing God's will, or things are bad. I must, I must be doing God's will. He says, "I'm doing God's will, and then we'll see what comes." A long time ago, I was listening uh, to a conference in Minneapolis. This is when I was a young pastor. I went to this, this, uh, this conference, and I was listening in. Uh, John Piper uh, some of you may have heard of John he's sort of a famous preacher back in the Midwest and he was talking about suffering and the power of John loves to talk about and he uses this voice like suffering and you're kind of like oh man it sounds real bad and he's talking about the power of suffering to shape us and mold us and at the very end of this really passionate talk about the power of suffering in the Christian life um, he takes questions and I mean I I wasn't going to raise my hand it was a scary moment to like question John Piper, but this very brave pastor in the third row raises his hand and I'll never forget this guy because he was like one of those eager students, you know, like pick me, pick me. And he says, Pastor John, and and he's kind of trying to be a little bit smart, you know, because we're following Christ in America where it's pretty easy and we don't experience much much suffering, do you think we should engage things like maybe fasting or other spiritual disciplines that will intentionally bring suffering into our lives so that we can, you know, experience spiritual growth? Should we seek out and engage suffering on our own? And I'll never forget, Piper kind of snarls at him and kind of, you know, just looks, and you can tell he's thinking, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, this guy's in big trouble. <laughs> now he was actually very gracious, but he said this, and I'll never forget his answer. He said, self sought after suffering will only produce pride and arrogance in your soul. We never seek suffering. We seek Jesus. And then we accept whatever it is He brings. If we seek Jesus, suffering, even in America, will eventually come. So when we talk about self-denial, friends, do not hear me saying that we are going to be a church that goes out and tries to suffer more. No, we're going to seek Jesus more. So what is it? If that's what it isn't, self-denial is not the seeking of suffering, so what is it? Self-denial, friends, is the seeking of God's will in our lives above our own or anybody else's. I'll say that again. Self-denial is the seeking of God's will in our lives above our own or anybody else's. You see, self-denial... Say it again. That'll preach. That'll preach. It is preaching right now. Thanks for the encouragement. I'm not used to that here sometimes, so that kind of of throws me off, but you know, you guys could take a lesson from this gentleman and encourage me every now and then. I might go longer if you do that, but you know. Yeah, self-denial constantly, consistently says to God, in every single situation this, in every single moment, in every single situation of our lives, self-denial looks this way. God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know what self-denial does? Self-denial takes those two words on earth and makes them personal. Makes them practical, gets specific with them. Father, your will be done in this decision as it is in heaven. Father, your will be done in this conflict as it is in heaven. Father, your will be done in this marriage as it is in heaven. Father, your will be done in this work dynamic as it is in heaven. Father, your will be done in this family as it is in heaven. Your will be done with my time, with my attitudes, with my finances, with my priorities as it should be in heaven. You see, self-denial says, God, not what I want, not what I will, but what you will. I lay aside myself for yourself. My desires, God, for your desires. You see, so many of us are tempted to pray and we ask God, God, would you align your will with my will? Do you ever pray this way? I do all the time, so I, and I catch myself, Lord, here's what I really want. Can you make that happen? Can your will come into alignment with my will instead of, no, 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 Lord, help my will come into alignment with your will. See, that's a mistake we all make. But here's another mistake we make. Because self-denial often happens in relationships. Sometimes what we do, and we call this self-denial, we call this dying to self, we take our will and we lay it down, but we don't align it with God's will, we align it with another. You see? That's not self denial, but it feels like self denial. It feels closer. It feels so selfless for me to say, not what I want, but what you want. You want this other person. You want spouse. You want friend. You want family member. You want coworker. Not what I want, but what you want. And that is not self denial either. Self-denial says, I want to kill my desires and replace them with God's desires, not your desires. I want my desires to be crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. You know, this becomes tricky in marriage sometimes, doesn't it? Because sometimes if I'm honest, when I live this verse out, I would say, I want my desires to be crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but then Amy lives in me. And that's not God's will because Amy's a great lady, but Christ's goal isn't that Amy lives in me. He wants us to become one, but he wants us to become one as we both become more like Jesus, him. Yeah, not each other. It's not me taking on her desires and her taking on mine. It's us both taking on the desires of Christ. This is why um, Paul says things like this when he talks about the Christian life. Listen to the language. It's death language. This is a part of transformation. This is a part of growing in Jesus. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your desires, the desires that are in you or your friends, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. That's a short list. It's not comprehensive. He could go on for pages and pages and pages. He could fill an entire book with the desires that we are tempted to lean into instead of the desires of Christ. And so the message is is kill me and bring to life Jesus, not kill me and replace me with someone else. We don't lay down our desires, ourselves, our wants, in order to adopt the will of another. That's why Paul writes to the Galatians, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, for some of you, listen to this, listen to this for some of you who, who struggle with codependency, because I can relate. For some of you, denying yourself and dying to yourself will mean having a confrontation because you'd rather not. See, I'm, I'm having this conflict with you, why? Because I need to die to myself. And if I just followed my own desires, I wouldn't do it, Right? But it's the most loving, selfless thing for me to do, and so I have to engage. For some in this room, it'll mean being honest with a friend or a coworker. It'll mean saying, I think Jesus wants us to do this one my way. Or not your way. Right? That sometimes is dying to self for some people in this room. It's laying aside your desires and it's laying aside the desires of the other as well. So don't be mechanical or legalistic on this thing. Jesus is not saying here, you know, take up your cross and be a doormat for everyone in the world. Just yield your will to the will of the world all the time. It's not his message. So how do we do it? How do we actually die to self? How do we adopt the desires of Christ into our lives? Three words. Daily spiritual practices. Remember that that verse, that intense verse I read earlier I said it was in all three Gospels. Listen to it from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You see, Luke adds this word in here because he wants us to remember that dying to self is not one big moment. It's not one big decision. It's thousands and thousands of little moments every single day where you surrender your will to the will of God. And then you'll start again tomorrow. And the day after that, I was talking to a friend this week who said, you know, one thing I'm finding is the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize how much work I have to do. Isn't it supposed to be opposite of that? The closer I get to Jesus, the better I feel about myself. The closer I get to Jesus, the more messed up I'm realizing that I am. The more death that I see has to happen in my soul. This is the journey. This is the road. Sometimes we get caught in the trap, friends, of trying to die through the strategy of I won't. Some of you have been on this cycle for years you're a Christian, you want to follow Jesus, you know what he's calling you to do, you know the attitudes that he wants you to have, and yet your strategy is just, I won't. I won't do this. I won't feel this way. I'll try really hard not to buy this or respond to this or say this. Friends, the strategy of I won't is a losing battle. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he says. He says, "I do not understand what I do." He's talking about his actions. I don't understand why what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. What's Paul saying here? He's talking about sin, right? He's talking about actions that don't honor God, that don't align with Christ in Him. And he's saying, "I do these things that that I know are wrong." That I know God doesn't approve of, and I engage them, and I can't stop. What he's telling us here is that behavior modification doesn't work. He's saying I can't die to self by simply trying harder to die to self. Dying to self doesn't actually work just by saying, like, there's a behavior I don't want to do, and I'm going to try really hard not to do it. Um, Listen to how John Orberg talks about this. This is one of the most... uh, insightful paragraphs I read this week and it really blessed me. Orberg's talking about how we are really formed by habits and I would almost take his word habits and replace it with the word desires but you can hear it from from his language. Orberg says this, a habit is is a relatively permanent pattern of behavior. A habit is a relatively permanent pattern of behavior. The capacity for habitual behavior is crucial to life. When you're learning to tie a shoe or drive a car, it's hard work. How many can relate to that? How many are in my phase of life right now with some kids that are learning to tie a shoe? How many in here can tie their shoes? Right? Some of you used to be able to tie your shoes and now you can't anymore. But, but that's okay. It's just, it's a cycle of life, right? But here's the thing with tying shoes. It's the easiest thing ever. I can do it like that without even thinking about it. And then I start to teach my kids to tie their shoes. And you know, all I I can think is, how did I ever learn to do this? This is the most difficult, complicated process, you know, anyone ever thought of in all of humanity. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, when you're learning to tie a shoe or drive a car, it's really hard. It's really difficult. After you learn, though, he says, it becomes habitual. You don't even have to think about it anymore. It has become second nature. Without habits, we couldn't make it through the day. You are mostly a collection of habits. You ever think about that? You are mostly a collection of habits. God made us that way. It's a good thing. Except for this, sin has gotten into our habits and it affects the recurring way I think and perceive and feel and desire and choose and speak and act. And then he says this, and here's the point. I can override a habit by willpower for a moment or two But over the long haul, my habits will always defeat my willpower. If you're taking notes, write that down. Over the long haul, my habits will always defeat my willpower. My only hope is not a stronger will, it's a new set of habits. And again, I would insert the word desires there. My only hope is not a stronger will, it's a new set of desires. And friends, this is where spiritual practices come in. This is why hunger for more is so essential for you. Because you cannot live the Christian life, experience the transformation God longs for you to experience by simply trying harder to change your external behavior. You have to tap into the power that will change your habits, that will change your heart desires. Paul talks about this thing as well. He talks about this very reality. And he's talking to the church at Corinth and he's talking about training for athletic events. And he says these athletes, they pour time and energy and blood and sweat and tears into training. Why? So that when they get on the field, when they get in the event, it's just what? It's instinct. It's habit. They just perform. They don't have to think. They don't have to try. They simply respond out of what has changed in their habits. And he says this, he says, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm training for something that's far more important than than an athletic competition. I'm training to live a transformed life in Jesus. And so he says, I don't just work on my behaviors, I work to train my desires, my heart, my soul, my spiritual practices. One of the greatest pianists of the last century was a gentleman named Paderewski. Some of you may know of Paderewski. And one time somebody asked him, Sir, or said to him, I guess, Sir, you are a genius. You are a genius at the piano. And I love his response. He says, "Madam, before I was a genius, I was a drudge. If somebody loves music, they bury themselves in practice. They deny themselves the easier routine of just laying around or doing whatever they feel like doing. And then, as they die to their own desires, something glorious comes to life. You see, he's saying, I have changed the internal habits of how I play music. The answer to self Denial is not simply just trying harder or augmenting behavior, but to constantly partner with God to die to self and rewrite the habits and desires of our hearts. Friends, when Jesus' followers come together and they study scripture and they pray and they give and they serve and they confess and they receive communion, what they're doing is they're replacing sinful habits with kingdom habits. You see, spiritual practices... Prayer, reading the Bible, worshiping on your own, writing in a journal, those aren't just extra credit points for the spiritual life. Those are the tools by which you can partner with God and His Spirit to rewrite the desires of your soul so that then you have the power, the ability to live the transformed life. That's why they matter so much. You know, I saw this lived out in an interesting way when I was um, worshiping in a rural church in Nigeria. A number of years ago, I had the chance to go to Nigeria on a mission trip and we traveled around and uh, visited some places and I was invited to preach in this very rural church. And I'll just say that it was, it was an interesting experience. It was... A room with not many amenities, no air conditioning, and it was hot—not Portland hot, like real hot. It was hot, hot, and you weren't dressed in shorts and a t-shirt. People came to church in real nice church clothes there in Nigeria, and so I'm dressed to the nines in a suit, sweating bullets, and the service services would go for two, two and a half hours. And the high point of the service that day was certainly not the sermon, because I gave it. Um, It was shorter than what they were used to. Um, It wasn't even the worship, even though that was phenomenal. The high point of the service that that morning for me, believe it or not, was the offering. You know why? Because during the offering, no one stayed in their seat. Even though this church was in an under-resourced community, everyone got up and came down the aisle to give. I remember this one woman who just looked as though she didn't have that much money, but she was waving the money that she had in the air, and as she danced forward, it was as if she was saying, I can give something too. You know, it struck me that as I was watching these people put to death dependence on money, that's what they were doing. They were saying, dependence on money, die. Be dead. Come alive, soul, to trusting God, to being generous. The offering in that church was like a little exercise in financial death and resurrection. You see, that's what spiritual practices do. They do something to change us from the inside out. So the question this morning, friends, is this. Where do you need to die? What needs to die in you this morning you know what I really wanted to do today I really wanted to put a casket on the on the on the stage and just have it open and some of you would have come in and thought we were celebrating Halloween and been very upset and then it would have been about Jesus and I said see don't judge and so I looked into getting a casket and to save some money I was going to get a used one but I discovered you can't actually get a used casket um, so let's just pretend let's pretend it's up here it's open Stay with me, friends. <laughs> what needs to go in the box today for you? What in your life? What relationship? What attitude? What sinful pattern? What needs to just die? What desire in you? What habit in you needs to be surgically replaced with the habit of Jesus, with the desire of God himself? And that's just the first part of the question, because the more important part of the question is this. What would it look like for you, when it comes to that thing, that place, that attitude, to routinely and regularly, every day, invite Jesus into that spot? What would it look like for you to say, I'm not going to just try to fix this on my own, but God, I'm going to invite you in every day, to change my heart, to change my habits, to change my desires, so that my life can be transformed. I'm not going to just fix this. I'm actually going to ask God to come partner with me to fix this. What would it look like to engage with God on that level and invite him into that place, that spot, that relationship? As you come to the table this morning to receive the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of the power that is available to you. It's the power of death and resurrection over the ultimate enemy. Separation from God. You see, if Jesus can conquer that enemy, then whatever enemy you're dealing with, he can handle that one easy. So bring it to the table today. And don't just lay it there. Actually invite God into it. Invite God into that spot, into that struggle, and say, Lord, would you partner with me? to change my habits, to change my heart, to change my desires that I might experience the transformed life. Spend some time with the Lord and when you're ready, come forward to the table and you can go ahead and take the elements on your own whenever you're led. Father, thank you so much for this morning, for this story, for the reminder every week through your cross that we are invited to come and die to lay down ourselves and embrace you, Jesus I desperately need you. I need you to come in and meet me in some places. And I know there's people in this room who feel the same. So we invite you right now, Holy Spirit, speak to us, challenge us, lure us in. And uh, we look forward to seeing, God, what you'll do as we partner together. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.